What do you do if your brother or sister sins against you? Do you just ignore it? Maybe. You know, if it's a petty offense that can be overlooked, it may be best to simply ignore it. There are some hurts that we can swallow, that we can shrug off, that we can overlook with just a little spiritual generosity. We don't have to make a federal case out of every slight or offense or hurt feeling. As Peter tells us, love covers a multitude of sins. Some sins can and should be overlooked. Some, however, cannot. If your brother has sinned against you grievously and hurt you deeply, something should be done. If you ignore it, there's a good chance that it will fester and infect your spirit. And if your brother has developed a pattern of sin that could endanger his relationship to Christ, surely something has to be done for his sake. So what do you do when your brother sins? Fortunately, we've not been left in the dark here. Jesus gave us some very practical advice, direction, and a procedure to follow. We find it in Matthew 18. We continue our study there this morning. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. If your brother... Sins. Now, some manuscripts add against you. We really don't know what the original said, but it doesn't matter because in Galatians 6, 1, we read, If a man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And in Luke 17, we're told to rebuke, and if he repents, to forgive our brother, even if he sins against us seven times a day. So either way, if our brother is merely caught in a trespass or is actually sinning against us, we are to take action. And we're to respond by going to him. We're not to talk about him or ask others to pray for him or text him. We're to go personally, privately confront him. Now, that's not easy. No one likes a confrontation. 
You know, it's a whole lot easier to talk about someone than to talk to them. I'll never forget the time I asked a brother to step into my study one Sunday. I had heard that he was upset with me, but I didn't know why. When I asked him what was wrong, he physically started shaking and said, it's just so hard to tell you about it. But when he did, we cleared up a misunderstanding in about 30 seconds. And sometimes that's all it takes. Sometimes just going will take care of the matter. There may not have been a problem, but you thought there was, and it can be cleared up by just asking about it. Or there may be a problem. Your brother may have actually sinned against you or someone else and needs to be confronted with his sin. He needs someone to make him face up to what he's done. Like, like David, he needs a Nathan to point a finger in his face and say, Thou art the man. Maybe he didn't realize what he had done. Maybe he's in denial. Maybe he thinks no one knows. And he can hide his sin. Whatever the case, if he has sinned, and you reprove him as Galatians 6 instructs, not with a judgmental spirit, but in a spirit of gentleness, and he listens to you, you have won your brother. Not only have you won back his friendship, you may have actually won back his soul. For as James tells us, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So if our brother sins, we go. And we try to win him back in private. But then... If he doesn't listen to us, we go on to step number two. If he does not listen to you, take two, one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he doesn't listen, and by that Jesus means respond in a positive manner, we take one or two others with us and go again. The purpose of their going is to confirm every fact. They should first of all confirm that an offense has been made and that you're right in accusing your brother of sin. If that's established, they should then be able to affirm that your brother was approached with the proper spirit, not to condemn, but to restore, that you made it clear that your desire was to bring healing and not to cause unnecessary pain. And then they should be able to affirm the need for repentance and join in the effort to win your brother. You know, two or three might have more impact than just one, especially if the one is the offended party. And then if that fails, 
they will be able to confirm his refusal to repent and go with you to the church. And that's step number three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If the brother won't respond to two or three, the church as a body should be brought in to the picture. Now, at the time Jesus said this, the church didn't yet exist. But the Greek translation of the Old Testament referred to gatherings of Israel as the ecclesia, the ones called out, the assembly. And it's the same Greek word we translate as church. And besides, Jesus certainly knew that the day was fast approaching that there would be a church in the New Testament sense of the word. And it would be to this body that believers could turn when having problems that couldn't be resolved one-on-one or with the help of a couple of brothers. In those cases, the problem was to be taken to the church. Now, it's not specified whether it goes directly to the entire assembly or to the eldership. I believe it would be appropriate for the matter to go first to the elders to see if it can be resolved with their help before taking it to the entire church. But if it can't, it is to go to the entire congregation because the entire congregation has a role to play. If the brother refuses to listen to the church, as she individually and collectively calls upon him to repent, then the entire church is to view the brother as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Now, let's not be too quick to soften this by noting that Jesus loved Gentiles and ate with sinners and tax gatherers. It's true he even called a tax gatherer to be an apostle, the apostle who's recording this. But the point Jesus is making here is that the church is to make the offending, sinning brother feel like a Gentile. And a tax gatherer. That means he is to be cut off religiously as a Gentile, a heathen, and socially as a hated, money grubbing tax gatherer. You know, Paul makes this perfectly clear in 1 Corinthians 5, where he upbraided the church for ignoring and by doing so, condoning blatant sin in the church. A man was sleeping with his stepmother, and the church was doing nothing. They thought they weren't supposed to judge his behavior. Paul set them straight with these words. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate 
with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. He said the same thing to an unruly, undisciplined brother who wouldn't work. A busybody in the church. In 2 Thessalonians 3.14, he said, Take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. He was calling for drastic action to be taken. A complete cutting off of fellowship from the one who refuses to repent after being called upon to do so by the entire church. But even then, Paul adds in 2 Thessalonians 3.15, And yet, do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, that seems contradictory to the command to let him be as a Gentile and a tax gatherer, but it's, it's really not. Even a Gentile and a tax gatherer can be redeemed. They're not written off. They're evangelized. So, once the brother has been cut off from the fellowship of the church, he needs to be evangelized. Once he's been made to feel the alienation that his sin has caused, alienation from the people of God and from God himself, and has repented of his sin, he is to be welcomed back as a brother. Paul made that clear in 2 Corinthians. when He told the church that the punishment they had inflicted on the sinning brother had been sufficient. That it was now time to forgive and to comfort and to reaffirm their love for him. That's the way it's supposed to work. And it will work that way if we could get the church to take a united stand against an unrepentant sinner. The problem we face today is that the church is fragmented. There's always another body of believers ready and willing, even eager, to accept anyone. No questions asked. That makes church discipline very difficult today. If one church has the nerve to confront you with your sin and is willing to risk a lawsuit for defamation of character for doing so, you can always find another church that will ignore it. And in most cases, if a church is known for taking a stand on sin, a brother or sister who doesn't want to repent leaves the church. 
and simply go somewhere else before they're confronted. Sadly, that's been our experience several times over the years. But be that as it may, that is still the procedure Christ outlined. And he gave us the authority, he gave us the power to do so. To confront our sinning brother or sister. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, we've heard those words before. Back in chapter 16, after Peter confessed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus confirmed that his church would be built upon that fact, he said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Or vice versa. Jesus was making it clear that Peter had the power to declare whether or not a person had been forgiven. And that power came from the keys to the kingdom. The power came from the gospel message. If someone refused to accept the gospel, he would remain in bondage to his sin. And Peter was authorized to declare the fact that he had not been forgiven from his sin. If he accepted the gospel, Paul could assure him that his sins had been forgiven. As we noted when studying chapter 16, the tense of the verbs used here make it clear that Peter was not being given the authority to do something on his own. He was only being given the authority to do what had already been done in heaven. He wasn't initiating the binding or loosing of sin. He wasn't usurping the place of the judge here. He was simply making known the terms of salvation that had been determined in heaven. Peter was simply declaring what God authorized him to say. And the same is true here in chapter 18. If a brother or sister refuses to repent of their sin, the church is authorized to declare that sin unforgiven and to therefore disfellowship that brother and treat him as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. If, however, the brother repents, the church is equally authorized to declare that sin forgiven and to receive the brother back into fellowship. It's not judging a man's eternal destiny to declare that at that moment he is out of fellowship with God and in need of repentance. You know, we are very afraid of judging one another today. It's not judging someone to point out that their behavior is not in keeping with the revealed word and will of God. 
That's not usurping the role of judge. That's simply meeting our obligation as a brother and a sister to someone in need of reaffirmation of the authority of God's Word. We have an obligation, an obligation to confront one another. An obligation that we must take seriously, and one that we obviously want the Lord's direction in meeting. So Jesus gives the promise to be with us when making such judgments. Matthew 18, 19 and 20. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. You've probably heard those verses many times. The sad thing is that those verses are probably quoted out of context more than any other in the New Testament. Jesus didn't speak those words in a vacuum. And he's not making a blanket promise to do whatever we want if we can just get someone to agree to ask for it with us. Experience alone proves that to be false. God doesn't give us everything we ask for, even if we get others to ask with us. If we think by getting a prayer request on a prayer chain, we're going to get what we want, we are going to be sorely disappointed. It just doesn't work that way. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, if we keep it in the context of making a judgment of binding and loosing from sin, we discover a promise that Christ will be in our midst when making that judgment. That Christ will help us discern the repentant heart of the sinner and thus enable us to assure him that forgiveness has been granted or denied. When we declare that a man is still bound to his sin or loosed from his sin, we want the assurance that that is indeed the case. And we get that assurance by praying for it together with other believers. Because as we seek the mind of God on such matters, we can be confident we found it when we all agree that we've found it. Now, this promise was given in the context of making a judgment about someone's standing before God. But I think it may also be applicable to making other judgments about God's will being sought, especially matters concerning the body as a whole. 
And quite frankly, that is why we have a plurality of elders or pastors in the church, not just one. Together, the elders seek the mind of the Lord on behalf of the church. And they can be fairly certain they have it, if they all agree. That's why the elders of Chatham Christian Church don't take action until all are in agreement. When two or three have gathered together in Christ's name, he is there, guiding the decision-making process and making it possible for his will to be known. That, I believe, is the promise we find in Matthew 18, 19, and 20. And experience seems to indicate that that is true. And it fits the context of knowing when and how to publicly discipline a brother who is sinning. This is kind of a nasty sermon, isn't it? I didn't want to preach it, (laughs) but it's there. And it gives us some hard, hard teaching. But let's never forget that public discipline may never be necessary. If we go to our brother privately and lovingly confront him with his sin, that may be all that's necessary to win him back. If that doesn't work, taking one or two others with us, when we try again, maybe all that's needed. Hopefully that'll do it. Because going to step three is very difficult. Especially given the fragmented nature of the church today. But if we're given the opportunity to follow through with step three we must be willing to do so for the sake of the church and for the sake of our brother. It's concern for our brother that motivates us to go to him, confront him with his sin, and then assure him that Jesus is calling him back home. And it's concern for you that leads us to say that no matter how old or young you might be, if because of sin in your life you find yourself alienated from your brother or sister or from God himself, Jesus is tenderly calling you home. And if you would like to be a part of a church that is willing to do its very best in following the Scriptures, even the things that aren't comfortable, if you're looking for a church home that will be as faithful as possible, And one that will love you enough to confront you with your sin. If sin ever needs confronting, we invite you to come and commit yourself to this body.
Jesus is calling you home. Let's stand.